0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it is really a great thrill for me to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium this evening. Uh, I want to uh, make sure that all of you know that uh, now in its final stages is the final flight, which is um, the last in our three-part series of exhibitions of Audubon's complete flock, all 435 of the watercolors that were made in advance of Birds of America that the New York Historical Society owns. So I hope you will return uh, during regular museum hours to see this marvelous exhibition. Uh, Also on view is Lincoln and the Jews through June 7th, an exhibition that is really quite uh, novel, even for those who know a lot about Lincoln. Tonight's program, The Law of the Land, a grand tour of our constitutional republic, is a part of the Bonnie and Richard Reese Lecture in Constitutional History and Law. I'd like to thank Rick and Bonnie Reese from the bottom of my heart for this new series, which means so much to us. Uh, Rick, of course, is vice chair of our board, um, a great trustee, and together, the two of them have really made a difference in our ability to convey the importance of constitutional law and history to all of you and to the wider public. So thank you so much, Bonnie and Rick. I would also like to recognize the chair of our board in attendance this evening, Pam Schaffler, and to thank her. And to thank our long-standing trustee, Glenn Louie, who is with us this evening as well and has contributed so much to this institution over very many years now. Thank you so much, Glenn. (laughs) Tonight's program will last about an hour and it will include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach standing mics to my left and to my right in the aisles. We do that so that the speakers on stage can hear your question, everyone in the audience can hear your question, And those who access this program uh, um, remotely can hear your question as well. We are very, very pleased. uh, Oh, I do want to say that um, following the program, there will be a book signing. Um, Books will be available for purchase in our museum store. So don't, don't forget that. We are very pleased, indeed, to welcome back to the New York Historical Society Akhil Reed Amar, who is the Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University. Before joining Yale Law School, Professor Amar clerked in the First Circuit for Judge Stephen Breyer. He's also a recipient of the Devane Medal, Yale's highest award for teaching excellence, and he is the author of America's Constitution, which won the Silver Gavel Award from the American Bar Association. Professor Amar's most recent book is The Law of the Land, A Grand Tour of the Constitutional Republic. Professor Amar is going to begin the program with opening remarks before being joined on stage by this evening's moderator, Trevor W. Morrison. Mr. Morrison is Dean and Eric M. and Lori B. Roth Professor of Law at NYU School of Law. He has an accomplished career in teaching, including previous positions at Cornell and Columbia Law Schools, and he's clerked for U.S. Associate Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In 2009, he served as associate counsel to, uh, to President Obama, drawing on his expertise in, and teaching interests in constitutional law, federal courts, and the law of the executive branch. As always, before we begin our program, I'd like to ask that you please make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please join me in welcoming Professor Amar to the stage.
1: Well, thank you very much, Louise. Thank you very much to the Reese family. Thanks, as always, to Dale Gregory uh, for putting on these great programs. Uh, nice to see you, Pam. Uh, nice to see all of you. This is, this is, I think, one of my favorite places in the world. I love coming back again and again to be with you because um, I write basically for you. I close my eyes and I try to think about what an audience like this wants to know and needs to know about the American Constitutional Project. Uh, and uh, the Constitution is a text. It's a deed, something that actually happened, an act of ordainment and establishment uh, in 1787-88. It's an intergenerational project that continues um, to unfold. It's all of these things and um, it's transformed our world. Um, The modern world is really a world, I think, seems to me defined by America's constitution. Before the constitution arrives on the scene, there's very little democracy in the planet, um, never has really been. Today, half the world is democratic um, um, on an American model. So I try to write these books to convey the, the excitement of, of this project, and each book that I've done, and before I write them, I close my eyes and try to, to think about all of you, um, uh, tries to uh, approach, the vastness of, of, I mean, it's such a short little text, and you can say, well, how is it it vast? You can read it in half an hour. I'm pulling out a copy here in my back pocket, because I always carry, there's my comb, a copy of the Constitution with me, Um, several copies, actually. I'm sure I've got another one here somewhere. Um, So, there we go, yeah. Um, So... Um, It's a short text, um, but I've really spent a lifetime thinking about the text and the deed and the project, uh, and each of the books tries to slice this along a different axis. So let me tell you where I am in the project thus far, because I hope I'll see you again in a few years once the next installment is done. So each of the books tries to be panoramic, tell a story not of one part of the Constitution, but as it were, the whole thing. Each of the books tries to talk about rights as well as structure. Remember, the Bill of Rights was no part of the original uh, Philadelphia plan, so they thought the just um, uh, a constitution could be entire and complete without a catalog of, of rights, they at Philadelphia. So rights and structure, the whole constitution. Uh, I want to tell you about every every book, to tell you about something about each of the three, branches of government. These are not judiciary-focused projects. It's Article 3 out of 3, um, the, th- the third uh, of the branches, and yet many people think that, that it's the court that's first among equals, not quite. So all three branches. I try to bring the states into the project. Ours is a federal uh, republic. And I try to tell you an intergenerational story, because our Constitution begins in 1787-88, But, but actually, if that's... If that was the main story, there wouldn't be room for most of us in, in, uh, in this space. Uh, um, you see, for example, I'm wearing my Lincoln tie today. Um, uh, we, I asked to have this event on the, uh, in April uh, on the, um, and asked my publisher to publish the book this month. It's the 150th anniversary of the passing of Mr. Lincoln when he entered the ages, um, uh, entered eternity, and, and we live, in his, his house. Uh, the founder's house was proverbially divided against itself because of slavery. That house fell. We call that falling, our Constitution failed. We call that failure, that falling, the Civil War, and, and in its aftermath, um, we experience as a nation a new birth of freedom, um, to borrow from Mr. Lincoln, because um, that house was divided against itself, the framers' house, because of slavery. It was half slave, half free, Um, And we live now in a constitution whose 13th and 14th and 15th amendments are emphatic repudiation of some of the pro-slavery compromises um, made early on. So it's an intergenerational project that that is very much influenced by Lincoln more so actually than than Madison. Uh, And so each of the books tries to tell, as I say, an intergenerational story. I try to bring it up to the... Uh, about something about every century, uh, the founding, the reconstruction, the progressive era. You know, without woman's suffrage, that's the 20th century. I got three words for you, President Mitt Romney or President John McCain. They won among the men, so it's only because of, of woman's suffrage, uh, um, Obamacare, You know, you take away the three women justices on the Supreme Court, Obamacare loses 4-2. It doesn't prevail 5-4. You could call it Pelosi care if you like, and I wouldn't object (laughs) to that. So so women's suffrage is a very big deal. That's the 20th century. In our lifetime, um, we uh, achieved a second Reconstruction um, and ended poll tax disfranchisement and redeemed the idea of one person, one vote. That's our lifetime. Um, Very recently, we, I think, redeemed a vision of the reconstruction and electing an African-American president. So intergenerational, all three branches um, and the states, um, the whole constitution. The first book, America's Constitution, A Biography, takes you, the reader, through the experience textually. We start with the preamble, popular sovereignty, we the people putting the thing to a vote, allowing more people to vote than had ever been allowed to vote on anything before in human history, how they and their posterity would be governed up and down the continent. Pretty amazing. Just one sentence. We, the people, do ordain and establish this constitution. So that's the first chapter, and then I take you through this text textually. It's well organized, this text, unlike the Articles of Confederation. The legislature first among equals, not the judiciary. Um, the legislature, Article I, Article II, the executive branch, Article Three, the judiciary. You see, elected people, are su- presidents, for example, are supposed to pick justices. Justices aren't supposed to pick presidents, but see, Bush versus Gore. There's a, there's a democratic pyramid from the founding, the, lots of people involved. Legislature is the most democratically accountable, then the presidency, then the judiciary. It's a great democratic pyramid, so the legislature, the executive, the judiciary, Articles 1, 2, and 3. Article 4 is all about states, um, horizontal federalism, their relationship to each other, and territories. Ours is a project originally of states and territories, of territories becoming states. We'll talk more about that today. Um, That's very much Lincoln's experience. And For the founders, States created the union, but for Lincoln, the union created the states, places like Indiana and Illinois, his was a different vision of this relationship. So, the preamble, articles one, two, three, three branches, article four of the states. Articles five, six, and seven are about constitutional supremacy, uh, how we amend the Constitution, and it's especially hard because it was hard to adopt, and so it should be hard to amend. Um, how we actually did adopt it, article seven, and in between, this little phrase, the supreme law of the land, notwithstanding anything in any state constitution to the contrary, like what part of that do you not understand South Carolina (laughs) in 1861? The Constitution is everywhere and always the supreme law of the land. That's the title of the the new book. So uh, um, that's the first two thirds of America's constitutional biography, but since it's a textual project, I take you up through the amendments. The amendments, interestingly, have been added in chronological sequence. we don't have to do it that way. Um, we could have word processed the document. Every time we make change, we just redo the whole thing. That's how most state constitutions, in fact, are written. But we don't do that for the federal constitution. The amendments are so many postscripts and post postscripts, um, like a careless written letter. Um, and so the last third of America's Constitution biography takes you, the reader, forward in time through the Bill of Rights. Because the first thing that people do in the ratification process, is they they say, "Dudes, you forgot the rights." You know, we uh, the Constitution is crowdsourced. It's uh, it's like Wikipedia. They uh, bottom up ordinary people look at the thing and they say, "You you made some mistakes. You made some omissions." So that's the Bill of Rights, and then the Reconstruction, um, and then the Progressive Era, and the Founding. That's a textual project. Um, and my friend Trevor is here, so we're going to bring him on stage in just one minute. So that project is textual, functional for the first two thirds, chronological for the last third. That's one way of slicing the story. Here's a different way. America's unwritten constitution. The precedents and principles we live by, because there's a lot more to the project than just these words. These words don't say separation of powers or checks and balances, federalism. It doesn't even say the Bill of Rights. It doesn't say one person, one vote doesn't say separate is inherently unequal. Um, So we have to go beneath, beyond, and behind these words, but we have to be faithful to these words too. We have an unwritten constitution, as does Britain. We have a written one also. How do they fit together? Because once you go, where do you start? Once you go outside the four corners of this text, where do you end? How do you make sure that unwritten constitutionalism doesn't swallow up all the virtues of this thing that we all have in common, liberal and conservative, north and south, east and west? So that's the story I tried to tell in America's unwritten constitution, how we can go beneath, beyond, and behind this while remaining faithful to it. And the new one, and Trevor's gonna, uh, my dear friend, Trevor Morrison, is gonna help me talk about that. Trevor, why don't you come up? And while you come up, just tell you, the new one's gonna be organized, is organized, geographically ours is a vast republic um, 50 states uh, and if we slice the project not textually not by um, uh, interpretive uh, technique of unwritten constitutional analysis but what would the project look like if we thought about it from a geographic point of view Um, and that's what i'm here to to talk about today with the. Able assistance of my very dear friend Trevor Moore, Good to see you, my friend. Dean of you? NYU Law School.
2: Uh, uh, greetings, everyone. <clears throat> I could recite various fictional reasons for my being slightly late, but the true one is that everyone other than a law faculty thinks that this is more important than a faculty meeting. Um, <laughs> and so uh, it's great to be with you and great, Akhil, to talk about this uh, fantastically fun and interesting new book, so it sounds like Akil has been giving you uh, the very quick rundown on uh, some of his most important work to date. You all know, I'm sure, that Akil is one of our most important uh, constitutional thinkers, uh, one of our most uh, sophisticated theorists about the Constitution in talking with uh, professional academics about those topics, but also a translator of these ideas to very broad audiences, uh, uh, someone who's committed to the proposition that part of the project for someone with expertise in the Constitution is in treating that document, when he's talking about the written text, um, or the traditions built up around it when he's talking about the unwritten Constitution, uh, as both a, a document and a set of traditions that belong to all of us, and that in a sense are things that we uh, resubscribe to each generation. And I think of Akhil as one of the most important Uh, articulators of those ideas to audiences of great sophistication that go beyond the halls of the law schools, uh, places where where, uh, people like Akil and I work. And this new book then adds another look at it. Akil, when you and I were talking the other day, you said this is, in a sense, like a Canterbury Tales version of constitutional law, because each chapter in many ways stands on its own. Um, Each provides uh, an aspect or a view on our constitutional traditions. It tells a constitutional story, and it uses uh, states as organizing characters, mm-hmm. almost, in the story, yes? Yeah, so in the preface, uh, Akil, you say each chapter tells a national story about the American constitutional system, but does so through the window of an individual state with particular attention to some person, case, idea, or event closely associated with that specific state or the broader region of which the state is a part. So why don't we talk about a few of those, Mm -hmm, talk about a few of those stories. One of the interesting things, Akhil is a constitutional historian, among other things, and so you might think that a book like this would begin in the beginning. You might think that the first chapter would be about Philadelphia, maybe. You might think that insofar it was going to pick a a person in our constitutional history, it would pick a Madison, maybe, um, or a Jefferson, even. Uh, Instead, chapter one is Illinois, uh, and the person is Lincoln. Why? Because as I began
1: to mention, I believe that we live in his house. Uh, We believe centrally that um, all persons are created equal. We're all born equal. Jefferson said it, but he didn't live it. Uh, And he creates along with his friend James Madison, a pro-slavery party that will become, you were taught that Madison didn't believe in parties. He's the founder of the modern Democrat party. The, the party that Jefferson and Madison found would become the party of Jackson, would become the party of Roger B. Taney, um, and it will destroy the Republic, almost. And we live in the afterglow of that, and the, words equal, the word equal in the original Constitution talk about equality of states in the Senate, but not equality of persons, but Lincoln reinterprets the project. And he says that uh, ours is a system dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, and with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, these, Lincoln's reinterpretation is inscribed now in the text of the Constitution, a pro-slavery Constitution. Every early president is, almost every early president, is a southerner or a northern man of southern sympathies, a pro-slavery northerner. Even John Quincy Adams, he doesn't become old man eloquent against slavery until after he you know, has to try to win the presidency. His vice president remembers John C. Calhoun from South Carolina, and, and Adams runs with a South Carolinian, um, his father a, a, as well. So a, there's no cabinet officer before Lincoln. No, not a single one who says the following. Slavery is wrong. We should eventually get rid of it. Not one. And you've got ridiculously pro-slavery folks. We live in Lincoln's house, um, I claim. It's, it, he gives us a new birth of freedom. And the text of the 14th Amendment, he, he dies. He's, he's like the Moses who, who is given to see the promised land but not quite enter it. He signs the 13th Amendment but doesn't live to see it uh, 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 adopted, much less the 14th or the 15th. But what's the first sentence of the 14th Amendment? We're all, everyone born in the United States is a citizen of the United States. That's me, my parents aren't citizens, but I'm born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, so I'm a citizen. I'm a full and equal citizen. We're all born equal with rights, We're born equal whether we're black or white, the racial idea, whether we're male or female, because you're born one or the other, typically. They would have said whether you're born Jew or Gentile, whether you're um, born in wedlock or out of wedlock, the government shouldn't be discriminating against you. Whether you're born third or first in the family, there shouldn't be special inheritance loss, primogeniture and entail, and then here's the last thing. I would say you're born equal, gay or straight. Um that, these are radical ideas. We are still living through their unfolding. And Tony Kennedy is, is channeling Abraham
2: Lincoln, I think, in powerful wow. ways. Well, we'll come to Tony Kennedy. Um, the, the account of union that you give us through Lincoln, the conception of, of union, that he articulates and that you, that you elaborate the articulation of is, you say in one point, unionism with a Midwestern accent. That is, you bring us back to Illinois and you trace aspects of his thinking of, of, the, of the Constitutional Union that he knew would be re-articulated in some way yeah. through the Reconstruction Amendments, even though, yeah. as you say, he didn't live to see it. Um, what are the components of unionism with a Midwestern accent Good. as opposed to a Northeastern accent? So let me take one step back,
1: because before you came, I mentioned that I thought judges were third out of three in the Constitution, um, and that presidents are supposed to pick judges and not vice versa. <laughs> um, you so you were, talked about Bush versus Gore. And there's a <laughs> chapter on Bush versus Gore in this one. That's my Florida chapter. But if, if we played a free association game and I said, name the most important constitu- constitutional decision ever, many of you, you would say Marbury versus Madison because that's what you were taught. And Marbury versus Madison is not only not the most important constitutional decision, it's, uh, it's made, barely makes my top 10 and it's not even the most important constitutional decision of 1803. <laughs> and here's what is. Because I didn't say constitutional case and judges aren't where it's at in the founding. And you know the answer. The answer is the Louisiana Purchase because that doubles the landmass of America and makes sure that, we're, that Britain's never going to be able to reconquer us. Presidents make hugely important constitutional decisions, the two biggest in America. We wouldn't be America, I believe, if Abraham Lincoln unilaterally hadn't resisted unilateral secession, state secession by force of arms. And, and if Roger Taney had been able to make that call, he would have um, overruled it and the decision to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Those are the two biggest, so uh, going back to your first question and then I'll tell you what his theory was, the biggest constitutional decisions that have been made were made by Lincoln, not not any court, unilaterally so, to resist secession and to free the slaves. And this is a Midwestern guy. He believes, for example, that the Union created the states. Now, Robert E. Lee would never think that. He's a Virginian all the way down. The Lees have been in Virginia from the 1620s on. Uh, um, uh, Virginia's been up and running for 150 years before the Declaration of Independence. It's crazy to think that, that um, the, uh, the Union created the states. Virginia created the Union, but if you're Abe Lincoln, you're not a Virginian all the way down. You're born in Kentucky. Your dad's from Virginia. Your grandfather's from Pennsylvania. Before that, you think Um, The family comes from New England, although you're not even quite sure what state. You move to Indiana as a young boy, then to Illinois. You're an American. And when you move to Indiana, it's it's a territory in the process of becoming a state. The union is creating a state. And you move there because the union government is creating good land surveys, because the problem in Kentucky is you work in the land, but actually you don't quite have title to it, because Virginia has crummy land surveys, but in the old Northwest, the federal government is going to give you clear titles. This land It's going to have commitment to public education, and you're going to, and anti-slavery, the old Northwest ordinance, and so That's Lincoln's vision, it's a very Midwestern vision of the relationship between the states and the federal government. Um, You understand if you're from the Midwest, the entire region between the Appalachians and the Rockies drains through the mighty Mississippi River. You cannot allow through one port, um, New Orleans. That's the key to the continent in the way that New York City is the key at the founding. Whoever controls the Hudson River at the founding controls America, West Point, New York City, that's the founding. Well, in Lincoln's era, it's. the Mississippi and Vicksburg is the West Point and New Orleans is the New York. And you cannot allow a foreign power to have an economic stranglehold over that entire region. You have to float your goods to market. There is no geographically defensible border between the land of cotton and the land of corn. If you're a Midwest person, it's like totally flat. And if you don't do this, you see, if you let the South go, just, I know it's science fiction, then in the 1940s, a white supremacy Aryan regime relies, uh, allies with Adolf Hitler, and we are all speaking German today, okay? It's a geostrategic vision very much influenced by the Mississippi River and the Midwest and his idea that the Union creates states and the deep idea of the Northwest is this territory should be free soil. The language of the Northwest Ordinance is word for word for word inscribed in the only amendment that Lincoln lives to sign, the 13th Mm -hmm. Amendment. Mm -hmm. So to understand Lincoln is to understand Illinois in some ways and vice versa. And we are now all living in the land of Lincoln in some very big way. So do you go
2: so far as to say then that, because I think you say in the book that Lincoln is wrong, that the union created the states. Yeah, Um, I I have a slightly different view, Um,
1: but, but. He's right on the big point. No unilateral secession. you know, what part of supreme law of the land, don't you understand? Here's, and he makes the textual point, because he's a a brilliant lawyer. This is a guy who has less than a year's formal education in his entire life, and he has a steel trap mind. And I'm trying to understand why he says this thing that's, you know, I think uh, that the union created the states that I'm not sure I would subscribe to, but you don't need that argument. He's got a functional geostrategic argument that connects with the word land. He says, we all agreed that the guns would be, we'd spend our blood and treasure to point those guns in Fort Sumter against the Brits. And we never would have supported the idea that people in that one little locality can unilaterally turn them around into our bellies. We, um, if people don't like it, they can leave. They can't take the land and waters with them. And here's one point that that I think is just key, because if you ever meet someone you know who disagrees with that just ask them a very simple question cuz remember how difficult it was to get the Constitution ratified here in New York it's 30 to 27 in the Poughkeepsie Mm -hmm. Convention you know and and North Carolina says no first time around and Rhode Island says no it's a very hard sell if states had a right to secede if there were a money-back guarantee don't you think they would have said so (laughs) and yet Never in this entire year-long conversation that generated the Constitution did any Federalist ever say, why don't you try it? You know, if you don't like it, you can leave. (laughs) They say, in the Federalist 10, the union, 11, this union must be strict and indissoluble. Here's a letter that James Madison writes to the Poughkeepsie Convention that's read aloud by Alexander Hamilton when the eyes of the world are focused on New York, because it's all coming down to New York in a way that the eyes of the world were focused on the Iranian negotiations just a couple of weeks ago. We're all like, what's gonna happen? So is New York gonna say yes or no? Because if New York says no, don't know if the thing works. Here's the language of Madison's letter. Ratification must be, quote, In toto and forever, that is how every other state has ratified the Constitution. So so Lincoln, bottom line, let's be clear, he gets the big one right. He maybe says a couple of things that
2: I think were a little too exuberant, (laughs) but but let's understand where he's coming from. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. So New York, let's pivot from there. The chapter on New York is fantastic too, I think, in part because it features uh, Robert Jackson, uh, one of my judicial heroes, uh, a brilliant, uh, member of the Supreme Court. Uh, it's amazing, as you point out, that, that we think as well of him as we do, given his relatively short tenure on the court. And even more amazing... 12 when years th- total. Right. And even more amazing when you think of the n- near-perfect lack of higher education that Robert Jackson received. Um, more, other than reading law for a year, really no legal education. And before that, no undergraduate education. Right. From high school to one-year Albany Law School and then apprenticing. My, of course, my reaction is just imagine what he could have done with an NYU law degree. But, uh, <laughs> um, And he is a New Yorker, upstate New York. <laughs> indeed. Chautauqua. And you use, in a sense, you use that amazing set of biographical facts um, of Jackson's as a point of contrast with the biographies of really all of the members of the current court. You say, interestingly, that there's a sense in which we are in a judicial age of Jackson, um, jurisprudentially. We talk about the influence that Robert Jackson had in so many key areas of constitutional law today from separation of powers to the First Amendment to equal protection. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But, educationally or biographically, we are in anything but the age of Jackson. So play that out, Great. Um, Great. including its consequences. And in between, so I tell you, this guy hes the most important constitutional
1: figure ever. He's not a judge. See, the most important decisions are not made by judges, They're often by presidents, mm-hmm. but a year's formal education his whole life. Not higher education, total education. That's Abe Lincoln. And the next chapter is about the person that I think is the most significant judicial figure of the 20th century, He's another hick from the sticks, named Hugo Lafayette Black, a former Klansman from Alabama, but but he redeems Lincoln's vision again. Very little education, and he's looked down upon as was Lincoln because he doesn't have the fancy Eastern credentials. Um, uh, and Lincoln was looked down upon, of course, and so was um, uh, Hugo Black. And there's a story about him. Mm-hmm. I think he's the driving force of the Warren Court. Now Robert Jackson, another guy very little education, very similar to Hugo Black, um, basically going from high school to uh, to become a lawyer without the standard three years. um, And Robert Jackson's law clerk, Robert Jackson wasn't a law clerk. None of these guys were law clerks, and they didn't go to fancy law schools. But Robert Jackson had a law clerk. He's a transitional figure. His most famous law clerk is a man named William Rehnquist. And William Rehnquist had a law clerk, um, several. His most famous is a man named John Roberts. So the last four 40 years or so you've been living with, you know, if you were uh, um, a thoroughbred horse, Robert Jackson, you know, he's a, you know, a sire, you know, and a grand sire, you know, good bloodline. Um, um, But today, they all went to fancy schools. Three of them went to Princeton. They all went to, every single one of them goes um, uh, to a fancy undergrad school, two-thirds of them in New York or a state adjoining New York. They all go to one of two law schools adjoining New York State, um, Harvard and and Yale. They start their careers. So, they first, you know, the path to the Supreme Court begins in high school, you know, going to a fancy college, then a fancy law school, then they do a clerkship, you know, beginning in the judicial process. And then there are lower court judges, and then there are appellate court judges. Sonia Sotomayor, for example, district judge, court of appeals judge. Um, she's been on the court already way longer than Jackson ever was in his lifetime. Jackson was never a judge before he was a justice, nor Hugo Black nor nor Earl Warren, nor Felix Frankfurter nor William Douglas. none of the justices that gave you Brown v board actually was a judge before being a justice, except one and, the, and, and, and I know Ernie knows uh, which one, but the, uh, the forgettable Sherman Minton. <laughs> How many of you, you know would have remembered that uh, Sherman Minton, but n- none of the rest of... And today, they're all judges, pretty much, uh, except Elena Kagan, who was a solicitor general, which is like being a judge. They all went to fancy school. None of them's ever been elected dog catcher, much less Governor Earl Warren, Senator Hugo Black. So, it's a very uh, Attorney General Robert Jackson. So I tell the story of how just in the course of really um, two generations, we have a very different kind of court than we did, say, um, with Brown versus Board, which is the last great case that Robert Jackson sits on before
2: mm-hmm. his death. And what are the consequences of this, as you point out, dramatic biographical change? In particular, um, you do something nice in that chapter by showing the way in which uh, signature cases, if you want, of certain justices can be, maybe can't properly be understood without reference to some of their own pre-judicial career, whether it's Jackson in the steel seizure case, Black in in, uh, Adamson, uh, Roberts in the healthcare case, Sibelius. Play
1: that out. Please. So, you know, Trevor, you and I are old friends, and, and we um, spent a lot of time at another law school in the city. I know now you're an NYU person, but you used to be a Columbia person, and I always you know, think of our mutual friend, Philip Bobbitt yeah. at Columbia. And some of you have heard Professor Bobbitt on this stage. And Professor Bobbitt reminds us that there are different types of constitutional argumentation you can look at the text of the Constitution. That's one way of thinking about it. You can look at the precedence. You can look at the structure of the document as a whole. You can look at original intent. You can also pay attention to the tradition of how certain provisions have actually been implemented over time, the gloss of history, if the text is ambiguous. Mm-hmm. So here's my Point my claim, and th- these are all valid techniques for squeezing meaning out of the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't quite tell us exactly how it is to be interpreted. It doesn't come with a complete rule book about rules of interpretation. That's one. That's the most important aspect of the unwritten constitutions. How do we go about interpreting it? So here's my claim: If you're a lower court judge, then what you know is precedent, because you're a low, you're following Supreme Court precedent every day, and that's the world in which you live in and and that's useful um, but that's not but sometimes the precedent is baloney um P- Plessy was baloney because it really does say equal and so and and it really does say five times um the rights to vote and it really does say in effect that states aren't supposed to violate fundamental rights no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or of citizens in the united states and there was a time when judges weren't enforcing these things. So you can be faithful to precedent, or you can take the text seriously, um, or you can pay attention maybe to the, the gloss of history, but these things are in some tension. And if you only have judges, they understand precedent, but they might not understand these other techniques. Hugo Black, well, he's a fundamentalist from the South, and they, and he just says, well, let's, Let's just read what Jesus said, um, and if if English was good enough for Jesus Christ, it's good enough for me. (laughs) Um, And and that's a fundamentalist Southern tradition. It's not so different than Clarence Thomas, who's a conservative, not a liberal, but from the Southland. So Hugo Black is not a judge, and he actually uses text in brilliant ways because he's coming from a textualist tradition rather than um, a lower court uh, perch. Robert Jackson isn't a textualist. He's not um, a, a precedent person. In one of his greatest decisions, the Youngstown seal seizure case, he says, I know a little bit about executive power because I advised a president at a very, you know, in, in, in time of, of great crisis. He was Attorney General of the United States. And the text of the Constitution it doesn't, doesn't tell us enough about Article II. It's very, you know, what, what, what's executive power and where does it end? So he says, ah but I know a lot about what past presidents have done with congressional approval. And I'm looking at Trevor when I say that because he has a brilliant co-authored article in the Harvard Law Review talking about how, if we're gonna pay attention to what presidents have done, because they get to unilaterally act, it's very important that we look at whether Congress has merely done nothing because it can't stop it, or has actually affirmatively acquiesced in these presidential actions. Jackson says, well, text has its place and and precedent has its place, but let's actually look at the gloss of history, of of tradition, of practice, which may help us decide what things presidents can do and what things they can't, where Congress um, has acted or not acted. Mm -hmm. And and he says openly in Youngstown, I am benefiting from my experience as an advisor to Franklin Roosevelt.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you think the current court would behave differently on any of the cases now before it or recently decided by the court if, if it had former elected officials, uh, um, its members?
1: Well, um, there's, there, uh, let me take three cases. There's the Obamacare case. Um, and the one Republican who joins, see, it, this comes from a Democratic coalition. Um, every single Democrat in the Congress voted for Obamacare, every single Republican voted against it. That's the same lineup as the 14th Amendment, where the parties reversed. Every single congressional Republican, except one, voted for the 14th Amendment. Every single congressional Democrat voted against it. You know, and the Republican Party then was the party of the North, and the Democrats were the party of, of the South. So today, it's just the the, the the Lincoln's the party of Lincoln in name is the Republicans, but in fact is you know this tall, skinny lawyer from. Illinois. Um, it's the Democrat Party. Um, um, so, so, um, uh, so, the Demo- so the Democrat appointees on the court, they get Obamacare. They understand what the Democrats are doing. So four votes are there. But you needed a fifth. And the only one that you got was a guy, John Roberts, who actually had spent some time in the executive branch. He understood the tax power. If you, if you work in the executive branch and you did, you understand how important the tax power is. Sure. Um, and Roberts had more experience working um, for the executive branch. Tony Kennedy never worked for the executive branch. He did other things. So he may be, just by temperament and training, is not as inclined as Roberts was to, to pay attention to the tax authority. What are the two big cases this term? Well, one, Obamacare again, and if you read, it's a case called uh, Burwell and King, and if you read the text, you could say, well, they didn't say quite the sensible thing, Uh, okay, Um, and so let's um, um, uh, uh, unravel Obamacare, because you didn't say Simon Says, you didn't say Mother May I, and textualists (laughs) might do that, but... Maybe, you know, at some, if folks had been congressional staffers or been congresspersons, they might be particularly attentive to what Congress thought these words meant, what the Congressional Budget Office thought they meant, what the staffers thought they meant, what the administrative agency tasked with implementing thought it meant, and, but none of them have really uh, um, as much background as in, the, uh, as in the Brown era. I'm still very cautiously optimistic that John Roberts will see it because he... Uh, has a little bit more of that. The other one? In King and Burwell? In King versus Burwell, yeah. You heard it here first. Um, uh, You know, fingers crossed. (laughs) Um, And uh, on uh, same-sex marriage, we don't have a Hugo Black on the court who's thought deeply about what the 14th Amendment's deepest principle... See, if you're from the Southland, the 14th Amendment you know, Faulkner says, you know, the, the past isn't dead, you, you know, it's not even past, uh, Requiem for a Nun. And, and in the South, they, pay, they know the Civil War like more than we in the North, because when you lose a war, it's, um, it, it's, it's all around you. And, and so so Hugo Black spends years thinking deeply about the 14th Amendment, what its vision is. It says we're all born equal. We're, You know, well, does that mean born equal gay and straight, given new scientific understandings of the deep nature of sexual orientation? We don't have anyone quite like that on the court. Um, I do think that Tony Kennedy, even though he doesn't bring a textual and historical expertise the way black did, does bring some sensibilities
2: that are interesting. And we can talk about that um, in two words are Northern California. (laughs) So let's go there as the last, um, and we'll spend a couple minutes on this and then, and then open for questions from the audience. But two really fascinating chapters to read together are about two states um, that I don't think of together. Uh, chapter four is about California. Chapter five is about Kansas. Uh, California is, is, in a sense, about Anthony Kennedy, yes. um, about uh, this northern-central... Californian, as you say. Um, and, a, and a series of cases where he either wrote the decisive opinion or a concurring opinion by him became very, very influential, including Romer against Evans, one of the most important uh, modern gay rights cases. That's certainly, one of the uh, jurisprudential fonts um, that uh, helped produce the Lawrence versus Texas decision, which he also wrote in the next decade and could well prove to be very important in this term same-sex marriage case mm-hmm. as well. And then the Kansas chapter. And Windsor too. Sure, absolutely, Windsor, yep. Yeah. Uh, so that's the court's first uh, grappling with the question of same-sex marriage, of course, but not going to the point of finding a constitutional right uh, to have a state solemnize uh, same-sex unions as marriages if, if that state solemnizes Uh, heterosexual unions? And that question really is the one before the court this year. And then the Kansas chapter is about Brown. um, And and about the, in many ways, a a set of meditations on uh, deep political divisions and their interaction with deep principles of equality. And the chapter ends then with translating the Brown equality question into... Uh, the gay rights and gay marriage equality question. So take us across those two. If one posits, as many might, that Justice Kennedy could be a decisive vote in the same-sex marriage case, then we need to think of him as a California Nana Kansan, in a way, (laughs) for these issues. So
1: one party controls the coasts and the other party controls the center. Uh, uh, And um, uh, you look at... uh, um, there are four justices of Democrat appointees. That's the party that controls the coasts, and they're, um, I think, going to be in favor of same-sex marriage. Now, isn't it interesting that the one Republican appointee who I think is most inclined to support them grows up in Northern California, um, grows up in Sacramento. And the, who's the governor of, of the state when young Tony Kennedy is growing up? It's Earl Warren, as in the Warren Court who visits the Kennedy household on occasion, and Kennedy looks up to him, he's a, he's a legislative page as a kid, and, and Warren visits his household as a dinner guest, and, and Earl Warren is a Lincoln Republican, there used to be such folk. Um, and there's a realignment after 1965, there are not very few Lincoln or, Repo- or Rockefeller Republicans left, and, and we could talk, to, in, just in a nutshell, um, uh, Republicans and Democrats both support Voting Rights Act, but when that happens, Blacks in the South joined the Democrat Party. They pushed the Democrat Party to the left. Conservative whites in the South joined the Republican Party. They pushed the Republican Party to the right. They pushed Northeastern Republicans out of the party, the Lincoln Chaffees, the Arlen Specters, the Jim Jeffords. On the court, that would be people like David Souter and John Paul Stevens and uh, Harry Blackmun, Northern Republicans. And the last vestiges, Tony Kennedy. So he's, he's part Ronald Reagan, part Earl Warren, he's sort of both, um, but, but if you're from Northern California, you get it on alternative lifestyles and gay rights, and he's the one who gets it the most. I grew up right down the road from Justice Kennedy, and, um, and um, so, and in Kansas, well, this is interesting. Um, the pattern of, um, if you look at a map in 1854, South is very bad on, on race relations, and Kansas is on the wrong side. It's bleeding. You know, it's the Midwest. And certain geographic patterns of immigration come up from Texas into Kansas. 1854, bleeding Kansas, that's um, uh, John Brown. Now, 1954, different Brown, okay? Linda Brown and family. And Kansas is on the wrong side. It's actually allied with the, the Southland on segregation, de jure segregation. Just look at the map about which states are doing same-sex marriage and which aren't today. It's a very similar map to 1854 and 1954, A different equality issue. Um, uh, you look at the, 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 the coalition that um, elected Barack Obama Geographically, is the same as Lincoln's. Lincoln, Obama wins the same states. Lincoln wins plus or minus, loses the same states. Lincoln loses. That wasn't true of Bill Clinton, who wins southern states. That wasn't true of Jimmy Carter, who wins southern states. That that um, in the last, um, so so there are these interesting geographic patterns on the court in the country. I'll give you one final geographic pattern in the country, and then so before the 1850s, um, the South and the North pretty much mm. both um, the, the winning presidents win in both South and North before the 1850s, and in the 1850s, the South and the North are voting for different people for president. And, and in Lincoln, Lincoln gets zero popular vote south of Virginia, the, the polarization is complete. And that's gonna to lead to, that geographic polarization leads to a political polarization. Every Democrat opposes the 14th Amendment, every Republican but one supports it. Now our lifetime. Um, Ronald Reagan wins in North and South, and so does Jimmy Carter, and so does Dwight Eisenhower. But in the last six presidential elections, the South and the North have... This is before Obama comes along. You know, don't blame him for the polarization. Don't blame Lincoln. They're they're inheriting this. So... um, Last six presidential elections, the South and the North have voted for different folks. We're having the same sort of political polarization. And we're debating big issues. So in the court, like the meaning of equality, I think they're very reminiscent of the issues of equality of the 1860s. And politically, there's some very interesting um, uh, alignments. So the book talks a lot about the electoral college. We don't pick people nationally. We pick them state by state, and it tries to tell the story of specific states and why there's spe- Florida, Ohio, and Texas in this story. So there, there are patterns. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's fantastic. So we have a few minutes for questions from all of you. Um, if you'd like to ask a question, please approach one of these two mics in the, in the aisles. And uh, here are ground rules. Uh, before asking your question, please tell us your name. And I'll say the same thing that I say when I moderate faculty workshops, which is, please ask one question um, with, with not multiple subparts. <laughs> um, and there are staff members here on hand as well to assist you. Why don't we start here? Yes. Hi, Dr. Amara. Aaron Hall it, from Greenwich High School. Yes. I've been you. talking
1: about you. Are you guys going to We um, the People? Yeah, uh, yes, we can. This is a high school teacher from Greenwich, Connecticut. Year after year after year, he plows in the vineyards to actually... Communicate civics to kids, um, and he has a brilliant kids year after year. and And his team won Connecticut, and they're going to Washington D.C. on Friday. Congratulations once again. Thank you so Richard. much.
3: Thank you. Uh, so, Dr.
2: Amar, uh, my okay. daughter, my daughter was uh, six at the time of Newtown, and I grew up in Newton, Kansas, where Governor Brownback recently signed a law allowing unpermitted, universal concealed carry for all twenty-one year olds. Would you support a reinvigoration of the Second Amendment that included Madison's original intent, protecting conscientious objection under religious scruples, and how would that change the gun debate? So
1: Newtown is very personal for me. Um, My kids have a tutor. His name is Tim Napolitano. He tutors one other family. That's the family of the McDonald family, and Grace McDonald was killed at Newtown. So every member of my family has um, a green bracelet that the McDonald's gave to us. So so Newtown is two towns over from uh, Woodbridge. So it's it's deep and personal. Guns scare me, I don't own guns. That said, I think there's a constitutional right to have a gun in the home for self-protection. Um, and there's a whole chapter on that, not because of what the founders thought, but because of what Lincoln's generation thought. They thought blacks needed to have guns in their homes for self-protection because blacks couldn't count on the local police force to protect them when the Klan came calling. So I think there is a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection. I don't have one in my home, they scare me. Um, But but there is such a right. That said, once we admit that there's such a right, let's have reasonable regulation of it. Um, Because once we can see that there's right, I hope that the other folks won't treat every regulation howsoever reasonable as the first step on a slippery slope that will lead to confiscation, which is the anxiety. So let's have background checks, loophole free. Let's have limits on the kind of guns you can purchase and the amount of ammo you can purchase. Let's have, you have to take a practical test like uh, for a car as well as a a pencil and paper test. Let's have mental health background uh, checks. There are lots of things that we could do Actually, if we as a society basically agreed, we're not going to confiscate guns for people in their homes. That w- would be a totalitarian project. There are almost as guns as, there are, as many as there are people in America. Uh, taking them away, um, away would make prohibition look like a walk in the park. And here's a state's rights point. States are important. Almost every state has an emphatic um, states, uh, state constitutional protection. Of 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 uh, guns in, in the home and and state constitutional practice really does inform um, rights jurisprudence in America. So so, uh, guns in the home for self protection, yes. All sorts of gun control. I think that's the sweet spot.
2: Thank you. Here, I'm Jim Pacinich, I'm a docent here, uh, Professor Amar. The document, the Constitution, was written 228 years ago, mm-hmm. and yet you discuss issues that are as relevant as today. What's the magic? or Is it the unwritten Constitution? Is it the amendments that makes that document relevant today?
1: Both of those are key. So it's the the fact that every generation buys into it and glosses the text. Sometimes the text is ambiguous, and, and it's later generations' uh, contributions that actually tell us what... Pre- Can a president fire cabinet officer at will? Well, the text doesn't say that very clearly at all, but that's clear tradition, beginning with James Madison. Uh, Can we have independent agencies? Well, the text doesn't say that at all, but that's clear for 100 years going back to to Woodrow Wilson. So traditions that gloss text when they're they're capable of being interpreted in different ways, that's the Trevor Morrison article in the Harvard Law Review with um, Curtis Bradley that I commend to you. Um, if you suffer um, from insomnia. <laughs> uh, um, but also amendments, um, each generation, ha- and isn't it interesting, almost all the amendments have really made the project better, um, except for prohibition, which was quickly repealed. They've added to liberty equality. So I would say the buy-in of subsequent generations. The amendments, the fact that we the people have become broader and more inclusive. Blacks get to vote, and women get to vote, and 18 year olds get to vote, and people who refuse to pay, or are unable to pay a poll tax get to vote. So America has become more diverse in all sorts of ways. In 1965, you not only have the Voting Rights Act, but the Immigration Reform Act that brings people from around the world here to the United States. So I think um, uh, a broadening of the people um, uh, an implementation of the project through uh, on uh, developing tradition and a series of amendments that have made the thing better. And um, and by the way, I used to think as a young man the Constitution was too hard to amend. You know, all these good ideas and and they're blocked now. I think you know I used to think oh it could be so much better. And now I'm an old man. I think yeah, but it could be a lot worse. <laughs> um, and a lot of these kooky amendment ideas have not passed the bar of Article 5, two-thirds, two-thirds, three-course. It's just as interesting to me, you know, as an older man, that almost all the amendments have been good ideas, and a lot of bad ideas have not um, cleared the bar. Did the 11th Amendment make the project
2: Thank better?
1: Mm, if we just read it to um, uh, mean what it says, and says what it means, I've got no problem with it. Then at least it didn't do much harm. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
2: Here.
3: Uh, my name is Gerald Wolpin, and I happen to have graduated from the law school at which you uh, teach, uh, but years before, you were born. Uh, I, was, I, know, I, I noted that you did not speak about the Federalist Papers and the portion that said that judges, justices, have to be bound down by Constitution and precedent. And um, didn't mention Oliver Wendell Holmes, a great justice also, who in one of his opinions wrote, he disagreed very much with what the legislature had done, but that was not his job to decide and therefore he must uphold what the legislature has done. Uh, How do you square uh, those statements as to the meaning of the Constitution with the fact uh, that for example, in Roe v. Wade, they found, as they did in a shortly before case, a right of privacy, and yet, for years before that, the Supreme Court had specifically said there is no right of privacy in the Constitution. That's
1: great. So, um, there's a deep tension between being faithful to the text, it's possible that there's a deep tension between being faithful to the text and being faithful to the precedents. It's 1954, and the precedent, the text says equal, and the precedent says, you forget about equal. Just wink at it. Thanks to Oliver Wendell Holmes, who is not a hero. Okay. And the text says states are supposed to follow fundamental rights, and the precedents aren't following fundamental rights. And the text says four times they're going to add another one, right to vote, and they're not enforcing the right to vote. And the text says freedom of speech and of the press, and they're actually not enforcing that. And the text says criminal defendants have rights of counsel, and they're not quite enforcing that for indigent defendants. Um, so there can be a deep tension. My chapter... Um, in an earlier book, America's Unwritten Constitution, I, in chapters four and five, tell you, especially five, what you do when the precedents say one thing and the text says another. And in general, I think you follow the text, um, but there are a few exceptions to that. Um, but I try to explore, explore that tension. That's chapter five of America's Unwritten Constitution. Um, I can't go into all the details now. but, but um, Chapter two of this book tells the story of the great Hugo Black, because today, happily, we live in a world where the text and the precedents are in much greater alignment. And that chapter tells you that Holmes was an SOB, and you should not think well of him at all. He, he puts... He, uh, Eugene Victor Debs criticizes the war, and he goes to prison for 10 years, thanks to Holmes, and Holmes says, there's massive voter disfranchisement, what do you want me to do about it? And Holmes says, you can sterilize indigent women, you know, what's the problem with that? And you wanna revive peonage in America? Fine by me, says Oliver Wendell Holmes, so he should not be your hero. Hugo Black should, and Hugo Black, here's the world, hold on, of 1936. It's the world before the war in court, and it's unrecognizable. Massive malapportionment in 40 of the states and malapportionment in 45 of them. Mm-hmm. The f- Bill of Rights doesn't generally apply against the states. Free speech is, and free press are not enduringly and reliably protected by courts. There's organized prayer in the public schools that's quite sectarian, pushing, you know, privileging one uh, religious denomination really over um, others. Criminal defendants have precious few constitutional rights and oh yes, there's this thing called Jim Crow across much of the country. That's the world in 1936, 37. Hugo Lafayette Black, this former Klansman from Alabama comes on the court and he's gonna persuade Earl Warren and Bill Brennan to change all of that, a northerner, a southerner and a westerner. And they're going to give us the modern court in which today, actually, all the justices basically believe in these six things Bill of Rights against the States, that includes the Second Amendment, the conservatives say, one person, one vote, oh, that means Bush versus Gore, too, the conservatives say, free speech, oh, that's Citizens United, the conservatives say, but they're buying into all these things. Um, And you live in a world now where precedent, and text cohere much better than they ever did before, thanks to Hugo Black, who doesn't get the credit, cause he didn't go to Harvard like Oliver Wendell Holmes. He's a hick from the sticks, um,
2: as was Lincoln, and we live in their house. Akeel, uh, born in California, teaching in Connecticut, here with us in New York, urging us all to take an Alabaman as our hero. That's an American story, if anything is. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been a be